We're in week four of our series, Dreamers in the Hands of a Loving God, Joseph, his dad, and the rest of us. We've been following the story of Joseph. He's a young man overflowing with promise, and he enters adulthood with the idea that he's going to change the world because he's special. Um, And as he begins to share this idea, Joseph hits a rough patch um, uh, in his path to make history and change lives. His family history kind of catches up with him, and he encounters uh, what many people have to face when they leave the cocoon of their parents in their home. He suffers injustice. He suffers betrayal. He suffers the real-life consequences of his immature behavior. Some of it he brings on himself, some of it he doesn't. Joseph um, went out to change the world, but he barely survives the sins of his own family. He almost dies at their hands. Joseph is sold as a slave by his own brothers. His dad thinks he's dead. Uh, The family that was so functional and prosperous um, experiences a full-on fracture, and it'll never be the same. So we have to ask the question, what's going to become of Joseph? And would he still change the world? Does God still have a a special calling on his life, which is now more broken than he ever uh, dared think it would be? Today we have an opportunity to see how Joseph handled his sexuality as an attractive man in his 20s. Um, he He was a victim of human trafficking. He was sent down to Egypt, and then after that an opportunity came his way to bond sexually with a woman to whom he was not married. And he had many incentives to, to, to say yes. It was a no-strings-attached opportunity to hook up. Um, and the appeal of hooking up, whether in person or, you know, in our day and age over the Internet, it's the promise that you can compartmentalize your sexuality uh, from the rest of your life. It can be um, giving your physical body um, or, or taking someone else's physical body or both um, without giving the rest of your life without giving yourself legally, financially, emotionally, spiritually, give yourself physically or take physically. Um, It's dividing the soul from the body. That's what hooking up is. Um, And uh, so you take the the material part of me and the immaterial part of me, and I divide that through hooking up. Um, So I divide my body from the spiritually integrating center of who I am the part of me that receives God's love, the part of me that can sustain relationships over a period of time, the part of me that receives a unique and special calling over my life, the part of me that um, people will write about in the obituary, dividing that part of me from the physical part of me. That's what what, uh, hooking up is. Joseph had a chance to do that and to separate body from soul. And it would have been so convenient for him Um, And it would be so convenient for us to deintegrate the sexual and the spiritual. The body parts from from the big plans. Our private life and our public contribution would be so so convenient to separate uh, separate ourselves as if we can be divided in half. What I appreciate about the the episode that we are going to study today is that it contains both approaches. It contains two approaches to sexuality, and they contrast with one another quite vividly. Joseph kept the spiritual and the sexual connected, and and um, Joseph saw his sexuality and his soul kind of like a seamless garment 
couldn't be separated. And this, maintained that he, this meant that he maintained clear boundaries between, uh, uh, around his sexuality and his body. He, he created and sustained boundaries, or what some pa- one pastor called guardrails, that protected his body and his sexuality. Um, but someone else in the story had a very different approach than Joseph. She was more interested in dividing the sexual and the spiritual, dividing body from soul. She attempted to create a private world where she could let loose sexually with the partner of her choice. And that private world, she kept separate from the rest of her life. And so we'll watch and see how the story plays out. And and the point is not to make anyone here feel guilty um, or to to discourage any one of you, but really to better understand what it means to be a truly liberated person. And whether you're here and you have a religious background uh, or, or you have an irreligious background or commitment, Um, you've got to ask that question, what does it mean to be a truly liberated person as it relates to your sexuality? We need to know what wholeness looks like um, as it relates to our sexuality. Um, And so for those here who this topic may be a guilty one or or a painful one, um, we need to know that God's grace is for us, no matter what our sexual background and no matter what our volition was in the process. Um, Because God's grace can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Right? God invites us to come to him, not acting like we're cleaned up, but coming to him with our mess and, and experience healing and reintegration. So we're going to pursue that today. But first, let's look at Joseph's life. The last time we saw him, he was being carted away by slave traders. He was stripped of his robe. He experienced injustice. And then we'll look in, in Genesis 39, uh, verse 1. It's in your um, programs there. You can turn there in your Bibles. Verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Now what would that have been like? I want you to think about what it would have been like to be Joseph in this moment. There's no miracles for Joseph. You know, his great-grandfather and people before in Genesis, they experienced all kinds of miracles and God speaking clearly and fire from heaven. And the thing is, even after Joseph's life, the people of God would experience incredible miracles. But Joseph doesn't get any miracles from God. He gets silence from God. He gets hiddenness from God. Um, maybe he feels accursed. Maybe he feels cut off. Um, because God's ways seem to be hidden. You know, what becomes of your dreams, your big dreams on that journey down to Egypt? You've been roughed up by your brothers in Dothan. Maybe they left you with a cracked rib and some bruises back from their altercation with you. Um, So you've got that post-traumatic stress. And then there's this smelly Ishmaelite sitting next to you. You know, he's guarding you. He he, he follows you and you have to use the bathroom. Um, What becomes of your dreams then? With every bump that the chariot hits, you can feel the injuries in your soul and in your body. God, whatever became of those dreams, maybe Joseph was asking that. Maybe we would ask that if we were in his position. Were those dreams from you? Because if those dreams were from you, why did you let me experience all that injustice? Why did you let me experience that victimization and that loss? I'm scared. I'm bored. I'm confused. I'm homesick. I'm going through culture shock. I'm depressed. Are you still there, God? Because you're not answering my prayer. Do you still love me? Can I still trust you? 
Do you still have a calling on my life? Joseph was a long way from home, and he felt it, but he was still in the hands of a loving God. Verse 2 says this, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now this Egyptian master happened to be the captain of the guard, which was the equivalent in Egypt of the secretary of defense. And in Egypt, the secretary of defense was the number two position in the most powerful nation in, in, in the world at that time. Joseph is, is, it has risen dramatically through the ranks like that. And he doesn't even know it. He's being sold into slavery. God is hidden. God is present. God has brought Joseph low. God has decided that it's time to raise him up. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. All right, so Joseph is now performing excellent work. He's doing well in his job. And this is the first level of vocational flourishing, is that you get projects that you're working on and you're doing good work. You're doing it on time and they're succeeding. But then he's, he rises up from there. Verse 4, first part of verse 4. So Joseph found favor in his sight, Potiphar's sight, and attended him. All right, this is another level of vocational growth. Joseph is now promoted to becoming a member of Potiphar's inner circle. He's working with Potiphar on projects now. He's trusted. And he attends to projects that Potiphar directly oversees. But that's not all. The second part of verse 4 says this, And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Okay, so we have a third layer of vocational flourishing, which is now overseeing good work. Joseph is now getting excellent work done through others, which is more complex than getting work done just yourself. Um, it means that you need to recruit. It means that you need to find good talent and manage them and lead them. You need to broker conflicts in the household. You need to establish a healthy work environment. You need to make it even fun for people to come to work, to keep working. You can't run a household in Egyptians number two without being highly aware of other people and systems. And special snowflakes don't have time for that. It's not possible to run a household with zero drama if you are yourself an entitled brat. Right? It's so different now in Potiphar's house than it was with Joseph's brothers. Something's happened to Joseph on his way to Egypt. It appears that suffering, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, has purified this young man, burning up his immaturities, burnishing his strengths, and making him more empathetic of people. After he was beaten and suffered the indignity of being sold as a slave, he's grown in his soul. There's more empathy. There's more awareness of God. There's more awareness of other people. He's not so enamored with his own talents, and that makes him more useful to the world, to God. I believe... This is important. I believe that Joseph had internalized the truth that he was made in the image of God, that his life had value, and that he was called to be a blessing to the world. He had internalized that truth that it strengthened him. God's blessing just wasn't on Joseph like a, like a robe of many colors. God's blessing was in Joseph. And that was part of his maturity. You could strip away his coat of many colors, but you couldn't strip away God's blessing on his life and on his soul. 
And this is important when we start to discuss Joseph's sexuality and his boundaries around his sexualities. sexuality. God has given Joseph a humble confidence. Um, he's given him a fullness of the soul. His soul was filled by God. So he could build and sustain bonds of trust with his supervisors, with his employees and peers. His soul was filled by God, and then he began to establish guardrails around that fullness. And in both cases, he was free. He was free. When God's blessing has been internalized in your soul, you become free to say no to temptation. And then to begin to bless others as a result. Rather than using your body or their body, rather than abusing your power or manipulating theirs, and if only Abraham's, uh, if only his great-grandfather Abraham could see that in action, because God promised Abraham that this would happen through his line. What happens when a soul is filled with the blessing of God? Verse 5 says this, from, from the time that, he, that Potiphar had made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had. Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. This is incredible trust. And this was as a result of God's blessing. God promised Abraham, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it's finally coming through, through his great-grandson, Joseph. And he's doing it in Potiphar's house. But there's a problem. Joseph was really, really, ridiculously good looking. <laughs> Verse 6, second part. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And as you know, there's more to life than that. But... Someone was watching him. Someone was looking at him. Verse 7, After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Now, this is a highly unusual proposition. Think about it. Normally, in, in, in human relationships, and this is reflected in ancient writings and in life, propositions for sexual intercourse are more nuanced. They are more relational. There's more of a process. But not this one. Uh, one preacher translates... Uh, these, it's kind of one verb, but two words. Um, he translates it as sex. <laughs> now. <laughs> Potiphar's wife, in essence, she, she doesn't see Joseph. She doesn't see what's true. She doesn't see his soul, his calling. Uh, she sees his body. And that's all she sees. He's just a body to consume. Um, and uh, like Isaac, Potiphar's wife is a slave to her appetites. She's not liberated. Um, she, she likes what she sees in, in Joseph's young body, and she feels entitled to take what she desires. As the wife of the number two in Egypt, perhaps she feels privileged to do that. Hey, I've got power here. No one says no to me. You're not going to say no to me. Sex, now. And how will Joseph respond? Verse 8. But Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, 
Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in charge in my charge. Verse 9, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now think about this. For Joseph, Joseph is being given an invitation to have a private, secret, sexual encounter. And what Joseph is pushing back with is the idea that sex is not a private moment. You can try to pretend that it's a private moment, but it's a public moment that not many people see. Um, Sex is not just a private moment, and it's not just a manipulation of body parts, and it's an activity that has implications for every part of your life. Your sexuality can't be separated from your commitments because it's designed to symbolize your commitments. Your legal commitments, relational commitments, what they are, what they aren't. Sexuality is a symbol for what those are or what those aren't. And Joseph points back to his commitments. I have the trust of your master. And this affair would break that trust. I have the blessing of God on my life and in my heart. And this affair would spurn that blessing. Potiphar's wife sees Joseph's body as something to consume for her own private gratification. But Joseph sees his body as a gift, as a gift from God. Everything he does um, with his body is an act of, of public worship, quorum deo, before the face of God. That's, what, he, that's, that's uh, what he's doing with his body. It's before the face of God. And Joseph expresses in his body what God has said is true about his life. And this is why Joseph is refusing sex outside the marriage bond. Here's another way to sum this up. Um, so, so one of the messages that we receive a lot in, in our culture in a number of different ways is that fullness of soul comes from having lots and lots of sex whenever you want it. If, you, if you're ready to consent to sex, fullness of life, fullness of soul, a, a truly liberated life comes from um, taking away the boundaries around your body. But what this text is teaching, what the scriptural narrative teaches, is that it's the opposite, that boundaries around the body reflect a fullness of the soul. Boundaries around your sexuality and around your body reflect, symbolize the fullness that's already there. Even if you don't feel the fullness, with boundaries around your body and sexuality, you're saying to God, I believe what you've spoken about me. I believe that you love me, that I have been blessed by you, that my body is, is sacred, it's a gift and meaningful, and, and in fact that my body belongs to you. My body doesn't belong to, to, to sexual desires or urges, whatever they may be, they belong to God. My body belongs to God. Boundaries around the body reflect a fullness of the soul. Joseph is practicing this and he's free. Potiphar's wife is not practicing this and she's a slave to her desires. Let's see this play out even further. Verse 10 says this. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, he would not lie beside her, and he would not be with her. Now let's consider what Joseph is doing. Joseph is maintaining what what one pastor calls guardrails. And guardrails are are simply... um, behaviors that activate your conscience before it's too late. 
Guardrails protect you from going off the cliff. Um, so whenever you veer into these behaviors, your conscience lights up. No one else may say anything because on the outside it doesn't look like anything wrong. But you know you're crossing the line and you've established that ahead of time. For instance, you could establish visual guardrails. Joseph had visual guardrails. Potiphar's wife did not. It says in verse 7 that after a while she cast her eyes on Joseph. That was a guardrail that could have activated her conscience. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually visually lusting after someone who's not my husband. That activates my sense that I need to, to get right with God and to, to back off. Um, she didn't have those guardrails, so she kept going further and further towards the cliff. Joseph had them. He also had verbal guardrails. Joseph wouldn't talk to her. Uh, he wouldn't talk to her about sex. He wouldn't talk to her day after day because sex was all she wanted to talk about. So in verse 10, he said he would not listen to her. There was verbal, auditory guardrails. I will not entertain a conversation with you. I will not listen to you because you've already crossed the line when you proposition me. So he's got visual guardrails, verbal guardrails. He's got sexual guardrails. It says he wouldn't lie beside her, same verb as her proposition. But he's also got physical guardrails. He wouldn't even be with her, which is the last verb in verse 10. He wouldn't listen to her, lie beside her, or be with her. He would avoid situations where she was in the room. And these guardrails are expressing, hey, look, I'm already complete. I'm already complete in God. I'm already full in God. I don't have to come to you for that fullness. When God says go for me to, to be married, which he would for Joseph, sexuality would be connecting him with that full-on commitment of marriage and would lead to children. Um, so my body is a gift from God. Boundaries express that. My, my body is sacred. Boundaries express that. I will express the fullness of my soul with these guardrails around my sexuality and body. But then think about Potiphar's wife. She's trying to cross all the boundaries, crossing boundaries verbally, crossing boundaries physically, crossing, trying to cross boundaries sexually. She feels entitled to do that. And her behavior is making a statement, I have a right to your body. And this degrades her. This degrades her. This says something that's not true about Potiphar's wife. We can even see this play out. Verse 11 says this, but one day when he went inside the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. Now don't picture to yourself a dramatic soap opera moment with, with lots of tension and what's Joseph's going to say. This is a, just a desperate moment. This is a sad moment. This is maybe the lowest moment of her life. She's throwing herself at someone. There's desperation here. There's a spiritual emptiness getting expressed with her advances towards Joseph. There's an obsession in Potiphar's wife. Joseph serves God and he's free. Potiphar's wife serves her desires and it makes her a slave. <coughs> Boundaries around the body reflect a fullness of the soul. And like I said, we hear the opposite all the time. You're not a complete self unless you're having lots of great sex. But how's that working out? How's that working out for, 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 for us and, and for, for, uh, for our environment? Just week, uh, this week, the American Association of Universities released the results of their study. And this, they were studying sexual assault and misconduct on college campuses. I encourage you to read the report. 
Um, it's very sobering. Here's what they found. Key finding, one of them at least, the incidences of sexual assault and sexual misconduct due to physical force, threats of physical force, or inca incapacitation, think alcohol, or dr uh, being drugged, um, among female undergraduate student respondents was 23.1%, including 10.8% who experienced full-on sexual assault. One out of four women who go to college in America are the victims of sexually predatory behavior from men who think, I have a right to your body. Do you know what the percentage is at Harvard University, premier institution in the United States? 30%. 30% of women who reported it to this study said, yes, I was drugged, I was taken advantage of, or I was just full-on raped at Harvard by Harvard men who think, I have a right to your body. That is the world we live in, friends. Um, hey, I have a right to several bodies. That's what pornography teaches you. It's like a school that you go to and you learn one body's not enough, a real body's not enough. I need several of whatever kind I want. Alcohol removes boundaries around bodies. So does technology now. Um, Nancy Jo Sales wrote a, a sobering essay for Vanity Fair about what Tinder's doing to romance. Tinder's an app that you can, you can find a, a hookup using Tinder. What's that doing to actual human relationships? She writes all about it. Um, and she basically says it's destroying romance. That, that essentially, um, most of the men are like Potiphar's wife. <laughs> Sex, now! But they're incapable of a conversation. And some of them are becoming incapable of, of sex. They're oversexed. It's, it's even destroying their body. Um, many women are disgusted by it, but as sales writes, they don't stop swiping. Because in some ways, they think this is the only way to meet men. The suggestion that you're not truly liberated unless you break down all the boundaries that you want around your body, I, when you look at the evidence, it rings hollow. And if you're a person of the evidence, you should look at the evidence. Who's truly free? And, and who's truly free in, in the USA? In 2015, who's truly free in this story? This bit of history between Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And the final stage of, um, of, of, of sexual victimization or attempted victimization is blaming the victim. It, happens, it still happens and it happens here in this text, verse 13. As soon as she saw that he had left the house, that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he's brought... Among us, a Hebrew, to laugh at us, notice she doesn't use his name. Later, she calls him the Hebrew servant in verse 17. The Hebrew servant. No name. He's always been a body to me anyway. That Hebrew, maybe a little ethnic slur in there. Um, that piece of trash tried try, try to assault me. Um, he came in us to laugh at us. Takes his name away. I would just want, if you've, been, if you've experienced sexual victimization, if someone's crossed major boundaries with you and dehumanized you and you're discouraged about that, maybe feel like that's, that you'll never shake that, I, I just, I want to encourage you to look at Joseph. 
You know, he's been, he's been a, a victim a couple of times. He was, he was almost killed. He was stripped naked. He was stuffed in a pit. He was, so, he was a victim of human trafficking and then att- attempted, uh, attempted abuse. And then he was accused of sexual abuse and went to prison for it. Look at Joseph. And God's blessing on his life is not threatened. God's blessing on his life is not threatened. God restores his soul. What happened to you was not your fault. God's blessing is on you. He's not disappointed with you. He has grace for you to restore you. And for for everyone here, you know, we're all in some way or another sexually broken. When when God gathers his people, he doesn't do so to shame them um, or expect them to pretend that they have no sexual history, but to offer his grace and restore them to wholeness. When we've lied to ourselves that we're not anything more than our appetites, he wants us to hear the truth again. You are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son, precious in my sight. And I have a calling on your life to bless you. And I have a calling on your life to bless the world through you. Jesus' body, God's own son, the son of God, God's body was desecrated so that our bodies could be cleansed, sanctified, set apart, His body was stripped and torn apart so that he could wash our souls clean and forgive us and restore us. Our bodies are are sacred to God, no matter what our histories are. And when we come to the cross, we we remember the truth. We don't get accusations, we get restoration. So from that place of hope and grace, I want to give two invitations this morning. And there's grace for both invitations. The first invitation is is to restore your soul through personal confession. Let the Lord restore your soul through personal confession. This, when, when, you, when you confess your sins, um, it unlocks the power of those sins to, to hold you captive. And it, and it really does uh, open up the soul to the grace of God in Christ, in his cross. The power of the cross is, is, is made available to you in personal confession, being specific with, 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 with the sexual history that you have. This is part of our Anglican heritage is verbally making confession to, um, to a minister, um, whether they be a, a, a minister like me who's a, who's, a, who's a pastor or a lay minister, which we highly believe in here at Emmanuel. So we have prayer ministers here that you can confess to any Sunday. Um, you can confess to any leaders that you know. You can, you can even make, make an appointment with me. I'll be available all week long. Just find me after the service. You can email me, Aaron at EmmanuelAnglican.org. Um, so that's the first invitation, is to restore your soul through personal confession. Let the Lord restore your soul through personal confession. Second invitation is this. Guard your soul through personal guardrails. Guard your soul through personal guardrails. So let me give you a few guardrails to start with. Um, number one, get out of sexualized relationships that are not with your spouse. Get out now. Consider if you can't separate dating from sex, I want to challenge you to take a year off from dating and seek the Lord. Put a, put a mark on your calendar of September 27, 2016, and, and don't date until then, and seek God's restoration. Let him, let him restore your soul and your mind. So get out of sexualized relationships that are not with your spouse. Number two, second guardrail, that is, 
I want to invite you to get free from sexualized technology, whether it's connecting you to images or whether it's connecting you to real people. I want to encourage you to get as much help as you need to get free. And it's okay to need lots of help. It's okay to seek professional counseling, peer support, internet filters, covenant eyes. Do what it takes and start today. Share your commitment with someone today if, if, if you want to respond to that invitation. And, and the third guardrail that I want to give you um, to consider is if you're attracted to someone who's not your spouse, um, share that with a trusted friend or counselor. Share it. Get it out in the light. Don't let it be something that makes you feel ashamed. Share it with a friend. Share it with a counselor if you're attracted to someone who's not your spouse. Ask for them to pray for you about this. The invitation to restore your soul and to guard your soul is not to earn God's grace, but to respond to it. It's already there for you. Joseph paid dearly for his boundaries, and we might too. You might pay dearly. With it might be embarrassing, or it might be alienating, or you might lose a promotion. In Joseph's case, he became a victim of the process yet again. Potiphar's wife told Potiphar, she's like, Joseph tried to assault me. Potiphar was angry, probably at his wife. Okay? She's probably done this before. If Potiphar thought that Joseph had assaulted his wife, this is, a, this is ancient Egypt. Off with his head, people. Okay? You're done, Joseph. Potiphar lost probably his most valuable employees ever had. He didn't even have to check in with Joseph about how his household was running. He's the number two in Egypt. He knows talent when he sees it. He knows character when he sees it. And he lost a valuable employee. So what does he do? He puts him with the king's prisoners. Still in prison, but we should consider what could have happened. Joseph was in God's hands, and so are you. If God can be trusted, he can be trusted with boundaries. If God can be trusted, he can be trusted with your sexuality and with your body. Boundaries may cost you in the short term. God's goodness and grace for you is for the long term. Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. I pray that you would take this teaching and this story. I pray that you would take the gospel of Jesus Christ and restore our souls and protect our souls. Pray for any person here who's perhaps angered at what they've heard or struggling with it or is filled with fear. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill their mind and heart and allow them to see the truth that you love them, that you're for them, and that you have an invitation for them to be fully restored to you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.